Today's reading is Luke 23, 26 to 49, the crucifixion of Jesus. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place, called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even snared at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. When he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, Today you will be with me in paradise. The death of Jesus. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last breath. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the woman who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. Before I start and bring the sermon to you, I'd like to say a special thanks to the people who have made this possible. As you know, each week we're trying to continue to improve the service and the functionality of what we do. And so I need to say a special thanks to Christian and to um, Sam for what they've done and continue to do to make our work with you ever better. So thanks, guys. They're standing here feeling embarrassed, but they're on the correct side of the camera. So let's bow our heads and we'll begin uh, today's message. I thank you, Lord, that you've blessed us with a memory 
that can only glorify your name, a memory of what the good Lord's done for us, a memory of his pain that we can have pleasure in you forever, Lord. Oh Lord, write these words on our hearts. Pencil them, Father, as tattoos, Lord, on our arms and on our body, that your Son died for us and rose so that we could be forgiven. Amen. So today I'm going to look at a little title called God Drew a Line in the Sand because today was no accident. God planned today the death of our Lord Jesus on the cross before time. Jesus' death did not sneak up on him and it did not sneak up on heaven. It was no accident. This is God's deliberate rescue mission for his people. The people of earth, the people he made, and people he loves. God gazed upon this earth over a period of time, as was his habit. And he saw the increase of wickedness, and that's spoken of both in Genesis and in Romans. He saw that the thoughts of mankind's heart, he describes, flooded with every wicked inclination and only evil all the time. That sort of sums up God's view of this world before he sent the flood. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. It wasn't a very good assessment, was it? But as he assessed this, he also found a righteous man on earth that he describes as righteous, who was Noah. So then God decides to act, because God never leaves sin unattended. Not in pre-time, not in ancient times, and not even today. Sin will be held to account. So what God did 2,000 years ago is he drew a line in the, sound, in the sand and he resolved to destroy sin and the men who loved it. All of mankind, except eight, would sail the ark. Sorry, that was more than 2,000 years ago. Clearly sin survived the flood because it is still with us today. So what God did when he destroyed the world through the flood, he destroyed mankind with the exception of eight people in the ark, but he didn't destroy sin because sin was around very quickly after the waters part, after the waters dried up. Now countless unknown millennia after the flood, God sought to destroy sin again. Now that was 2,000 years ago. Again, he drew a line in the sand, but this time his destruction was different. Now he would destroy sin, but not man. Please grasp the reversing of the way God worked. First time he destroyed mankind, but didn't, but not sin. This time he would destroy sin, but not man. That was the line he drew in the sand. To do this, he chose his only son, Jesus, was no twin to face the destruction. I want to imagine what it would have been like for the good Lord, the Father in heaven, who knew his son, his only son. He didn't have a spare son. He didn't have a big family. He didn't have other people to console him at the loss of his son. And he knew his son was going to die a most merciless death. So he suffered too. And he suffered that he only had one son that he was going to lose. Sin had endured in an ever-multiplying health. 
since the, uh, the days of rebellion began and Babylon was formed and then the world spread with wickedness. So God acted again through Jesus. The world refuses to hear it is sinful, but Calvary is proof positive. The good Lord does not ignore sin, nor does he pen a treaty with it. We do. And Christians and pagans alike, we continue to, to dumb sin down and to negate the seriousness of sin, so we write treaties with it. This sin's a little one, it's okay, but I can't do that big one. The big one or the little one is irrelevant in size, but it's very relevant in attitude. See, when Jesus came, when Jesus came to free us from sin, he didn't come to free us from sin that we could have a little bit left over. He came for a complete change of man, a complete change of the person that they would seek to put sin behind them and no longer be bound to sin. Good Friday is the day that sin died. Its power over death was defeated. But we still have to wrestle with sin until the day the good Lord, die, uh, to, the good Lord returns or to the day where we meet him. So what God did 2,000 years ago, he drew his very own costliest line in the sands of time to remove sin. Now sin cannot survive. Sin has a use-by date, although it looks pretty healthy at the moment. It's not going to survive. God would not suffer sin forever. Sin will not rule in God's earth, upon God's earth, in perpetuity. There was, a, there was war in heaven. Heaven was far more experienced war than ever earth was. It had the first war in heaven. And the war was between the angels and the good Lord, led by Satan. Satan was expelled to earth. He lost his home in heaven. He lost it forever. So he came to bring sin to earth. But sin isn't going to rule, although Satan is here, for the day will come when that evil too will be defeated. Good Friday is not about holding on to sin, but being freed from it. There is no cheap grace that permits me to be myself and to continue to sin. Grace is not cheap. It costs the good Lord everything. We're not here to do treaties with sin. We're here to be freed from sin. So upon that sinister mount, my guilt was removed 2,000 years ago. Undeservedly, Jeff, you can search your own name there should you wish. Undeservedly, Jeff gained redemption from my sins. This was the purpose of that first Easter, forgiveness where there was none. Forgiveness came to a world that did not know forgiveness. Humility came to a world that did not know humility. The virtues of heaven were splashing across the earth. So the cross for Jesus was far more, was far more uncomfortable than finding out I'm a sinner. People don't like to be told they are sinners, and it certainly brings some violent responses to say things like that. But it was far more uncomfortable for Jesus than for me just to recognise my sin and ask for forgiveness. The world refuses to hear it. It is sinful. It squashes the truth and it sails the truth tellers. Anybody that has tried to stand up for that which is Christian, even today in New York, where Christians are putting up a tent to help the people that have got the, the, the virus, the coronavirus, they are being assailed 
by the non-Christians around them because how can Christians be permitted to do these things? So we find it uncomfortable, but the world finds it something to be suppressed and something to be crushed. It refuses to hear sin. Now, we looked at Genesis 6 quickly at the start, where God found the thoughts of man were wicked all the time. This is his summation of how man works now for Romans 1. So we've got both the Old Testament and the New Testament view, which are very similar about how mankind still works. The wrath of God, Romans 1, 18 to 19. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. I can't see that there'd be any debate on morality, let alone the, the problems that homosexuality rises, arises with, if there was no suppression of the truth. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. God has shown us what wickedness is. He has shown us himself. He has shown us what sin is, but we don't want to listen. So therefore, Jesus dies on the cross so that we will take notice. To discuss sin is a mortal offence. Remember John the Baptist. He lost his head because he held out to Herod an explanation of what he had done that was sin. But Good Friday which we celebrate today, which we remember today. It's hard to celebrate, isn't it, in one sense? But we remember today. But Good Friday is how God deals with sin. He doesn't pretend it doesn't exist. So the problem we have is threefold, though. There are three significant problems we have with dying to self, which Jesus did in Gethsemane. He died to self. But so sin continues. What are these three significant problems that sin continues amongst the lives of Christians and, of course, outside of Christianity? The first problem with sin is I like it. And that's why I, um, I, draw, I write treaties with it and compromise. You see, no one would sin if it wasn't attractive. But there's a lot of attractiveness. There's a lot of promise. There's a lot of delights, unholy delights, as well as good delights that come from when we choose ourselves and don't deny ourselves. So the first battle is deny is the first battle is rather I like sin and I don't want to put it behind my back. So therefore that leads to the second problem of sin, it becomes recognizing it. And pride's the biggest enemy of recognizing sin. I need to call out, call sin out for what it really is. But the pride within me says, No, Jeff, you're not like that. You're okay. You don't sin, or well, that piece of sin's just tiny. Don't worry about it. Pride will let me stay in sin forever, which is why Satan was expelled from heaven, because, because pride was found in him. And the third, the third reason why there are significant problems with dying to self, the first one is because I like it. The second one is because I can't recognise it, my pride gets in the way. And the third one is there's a false canopy of love that justifies what I want to do because this is loving, even if it is sin. This false canopy of love is how we measure what is good behaviour and poor behaviour nowadays. If it's love, it's okay. And therefore that permits me or another to live in sin and to live with sin and be comfortable with sin because love excuses sin. 
But God's measure of sinfulness isn't by love. God's measure of sinfulness is by, by righteousness. He doesn't want to measure sinfulness in that which is going to promote more sinfulness. There is right love and there is wrong love. But there's only one righteousness. The day of reckoning still awaits, whether I believe it or not, that God measures by righteousness. For those who belong to him have a, a robe of righteousness canoping, canoping their body, covering their body. But those who don't, don't understand that righteousness is what God needs to see when he looks at us, not sin. So the question I have to ask is, do you believe that the day of reckoning still awaits? Do you believe that God's measure of sinfulness might injure my spirit so I change that measure of sinfulness? And I'll call it love when God calls it righteousness. Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his first sermon, his first message in Mark's Gospel. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. God's rule was standing right there in Jesus to those he was speaking to, to his disciples. Jesus began his public preaching with the call to repent, to turn around from the ways I lead, lead my life now. And he ended his public preaching with forgiveness. Were not his final words on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He taught repentance and he bellowed forgiveness. But we've been sidetracked. He did not simply preach love. He preached for God's kingdom is at hand. God's rule is present. And the time to accept that rule is limited. The time to accept that rule is finite. When God's kingdom does finally arrive complete upon earth, his dwelling will be with men again as it was in Eden. Then his love will truly prevail because love no longer will be polluted by wickedness of sin. To roll the, the, um, the clock forward, the time comes when Babylon, when sin is going to be dealt with and cast into that lake of burning sulphur in Revelation 18. And when that wickedness is destroyed, it cannot ever again rise into God's kingdom, into God's heaven, into God's earth. Good Friday is the kingdom of God, God's rule, taking an ever-tightening stranglehold against sin. Now, we know sin's multiplying. We know sin's still in my life, and I still have to fight with it. But it's on that Good Friday that God said no more. I'm going to deal with this. Please remember that while God's fabric is always love, his foundation is always righteousness. He sits on righteousness. Love is built upon righteousness. If love is not built upon righteousness, it can fall simply into immorality. And then we end up with, uh, with a false, uh, false uh, behaviour that we want to justify. I'd like to say, I'd like to think, to reflect, that the greatest weakness in human history is the perpetual for forward movement of wickedness. The greatest weakness in human history is the perpetual forward movement of wickedness. And that's certainly been since the Ark, since Babylon was established, since Babylon, since the Tower of Babel was uh, destroyed, since the Israelites moved into Canaan, and that hasn't stopped. But I want to say if the greatest weakness in human, he in human history is the perpetuity 
of wickedness, I want to say the greatest strength in human he- in history is the hidden forward movement of righteousness, because that's what God died. That's why Jesus died on the cross to give us His righteousness, that we could be clothed in it. Now, the thing about righteousness, it's hidden. People don't understand it. People don't see it when it happens. People don't even see it when it's shown to them. How often do people miss grace when it's been given to them, let alone righteousness? So it's a hidden movement. But one day, wickedness will be be destroyed and righteousness will be there available for all to see. Good Friday is the day that sin died. Its power over death was removed. Into the world marched a king on a cross, not a king with a cavalry. God drew his line against sin in the sand 2,000 years ago. He bellowed no more. I want to pray, thank you, Father, for the death I couldn't see that saved me from the death I shouldn't know. Amen. Now, can I continue, can I complete this little message with a true story, the miracle on the River Kwai? There was a Scottish POW called Ernest Gordon. He wrote the book, The Miracle on the River Kwai, because he was in this terrible, terrible place that was run by the Japanese. He says, as conditions steadily worsened, as starvation, exhaustion and disease took an ever-growing toll, the atmosphere in which we live was increasingly poisoned by selfishness, hatred and fear. We were slipping rapidly down the scale of degradation. We had long since resigned ourselves to to become derelicts. We were forsaken men, forsaken by our families, by our friends, by our government. Now even God had left us. Hate had become the motivation for living. We hated the Japanese. We would finally have them torn. We would willingly have them torn from limb and limb. But that gave away to just black despair. Then Ernest Gordon describes that he became sick and his nurse back to health by two other men. The act of sacrifice, which, which, which uh, excuse me, the act of sacrifice along with others began to create, create a change in Gordon as well as the other men in the camp. One day, he tells us in his book, a shovel is missing. The officer in charge becomes angry and demands the missing shovel be produced or he will kill them all. No one budges until finally one man steps forward. The officer beats that man to death all for a missing tool. At the next tool check, there is no shovel missing, and the men realised that there had been a miscount at the first checkpoint. The prisoners were stunned. An innocent man was willing to die to save everyone else. Now, no more hatred, no more killing. Now, what we need is forgiveness, Gordon says. Is not a man stepping forward to take the blame for something he didn't do? Good Friday. Amen.